here's the quote I'm going to give you. It was, nobody knows anything. Creativity is summed up there. It's in the, it's in the eye of the beholder. I love creativity because I think if you're, the more creative you are, the better connection you're going to make. Welcome to The Common Creative. My name's Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And we're on a mission to open up the conversation about creativity in business. And this week's guest is Stephen Basil Jones. He's the Executive Vice President of Sony Pictures and Entertainment. He is at the heart of a creative business, uh, distributing movies around Australia and around the world. Uh, He knows some of the big names in the movie industry. But most important of all, he has to help judge which movies are going to make money. He has to manage a creative organization. Paul, what did you learn from this amazing guy? Chris, I need to listen to it again. I learned so much. He had such great insights. And, you know, lucky he's in the entertainment industry because he entertained us as well with his with his stories and his insights. I think the thing that I took most out of it was his his balancing between finding, you know, an audience even for smaller films or a smaller audience and how they balance that. That was very heartening to hear. And he gave us this amazing quote, nobody knows anything. Uh, uh, his point was that there is no one source of the truth and you can't just rely on your research and so on. There's always opportunities for creativity. I thought that was so inspiring coming from somebody who leads a creative organization. Let's, let's get into it. Let's hear what he's got to say. Yeah, let's get him on board. Stephen Battle-Jones, a huge welcome to The Common Creative. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for having me, guys. <laughs> well, so, welcome, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, you and I know each other well socially, but this is a tremendous opportunity to talk to you about business and obviously the role of creativity in business. And one thing I think is fascinating is you, you lead a creative business. You're executive vice president of Sony Pictures. Um, I know you're closely involved in the movie industry. And if ever there were an industry that needs to understand creativity and how to make money out of creativity, um, I'm thinking that this is it. Uh, but am I right in that thinking that, that Sony is a creative business and your ability to harness creativity is central to its success? Yes, yeah, spot on, Chris. And um, th- that really is true. And, and it's creative from various spheres. I mean, creativity could be a documentary uh, in, in that respect um, to the most esoteric art house film um, that's perhaps seemingly from a person that's... Uh, had a good dose of uh, hallucinogenics and things. So the answer is that it is a huge scale, but everything in between is creative or indeed creative with regards to how you sell that film into its audience. And tell me about those art houses. I can imagine if if, uh, I've been involved in market research and marketing myself, I know that's your background, but the, the statistics and the research always directs you to the big blockbusters. And I, so I can understand how the Bond movies and the big family movies are promoted the whole time. Why bother with the art house fluff, which is clearly going to be niche at best? What, what is the role for that smaller stuff? Yeah, it's incredible because, look, one of the great joys that we have, and I, I, I'll get to you to answer your question, but at Sony Pictures, it's a wonderful thing. We have the smallest of films from Sony Classics in New York um, dealing with uh, foreign language, tiny little documentaries, um, foreign language films, as I said, 
to, as I said, the James Bond films. We've had the last four films, the big Spider-Man films, Men in Blacks, Jumanji's, all those sort of things. Um, but the wonderful thing is that range and diversity. But to take a small film uh, and to change its destiny and just by getting a film release is extraordinary. And the key thing about small films is that it's someone's passion, it's someone's idea, and it's someone's creativity poured into a into a subject, a project. And it's a story that should be told as far as they're concerned. And our job is to find its audience. And we believe every film has an audience. Uh, and that might be smaller than some of the others, but there's an audience. And it's an audience that will either be shocked by it, pleased by it, entertained by it, um, or, you know, in all different emotions and things. But we always believe there's an audience for it and a story there that's, that deserves to be told to someone. So, so I'd love to hear more about how you find the audience because we, we have had people on the show working for big mainstream companies and I know that when they bring new products to market, they'll tend to squash anything that hasn't instantly got a big audience. So I understand the belief that everything has an audience, but how do you find it? How do you know where to hunt that audience? Well, I think it's really interesting and, and, and in, in some respects – the smaller audiences are for us a little easier because they're more defined or refined and we will be able to sort of identify them in very, very much clearer terms. Um, and whether that be psychographic or demographic terms, we can define them. And then we also can sort of locate them via the cinemas that we would believe that they go to. So in Sydney, it may be the, you know, it could be the, the Palace Cinemas or the Dendi Cinemas. In Melbourne, it could be the Nova Carlton. Um, and indeed in Brisbane, uh, with any of the Dendi or Palace Cinemas up there. But there is always uh, perhaps an outlet that whose, if you like, characteristics uh, and audience sort of uh, appeal will suit the film that we are offering. Um, Stephen, I, I, I'm just interested in, in this whole thing that, you know, a common theme in terms of the creativity is around this balance about, you know, what's profitable and, you know, what's not. Um, and, and often, you know, obviously things that are, you know, can be highly creative may not, may or may not be profitable. Is there a, I'm assuming there must be a, a critical mass in terms of the small audience, you know, if it's too small, then, then it's not going to fly or does that come into it or do you still, it's sort of you prepared to take a risk? Yeah, Paul, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think firstly, you've got to have the support from the studio or um, whoever's supplying that film to, to you to be able to, 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 one, trust your judgment because in the end we have to view the film and say, it's a chicken and egg. If we spend this much, we could make this much or we only think it's going to make this much so we can't spend too much so we can either, you know, break even or make a little profit or in some respects we make a loss and but we make it up when home entertainment comes. Someone can stream that film or when it goes to TV and we sell it onto TV. Often the, the front end of the train, which is the theatrical uh, part of it, is the loss-making part. Uh, at best, we can break even, and then the rest of the carriages make up that money. That's not always the way, but uh, certainly we can look at it, uh, if you like, at as, a, as a business model and a long economic model. So, Stephen, I'm guessing this year has been more tumultuous for you than for most of us. Uh, your industry, you're thriving on people getting together in cinemas, will have been hit sideways by 
the pandemic. But strangely, in Australia, the film industry's had a bit of a boom because it's a safer place and a lot of film companies have moved into Australia. But my question is, is Australia going to kind of, will there be an Australian Bollywood in the future because the movie industry is um, benefiting from the pandemic? Yeah, I think, look, a couple of things. You're right. I mean, we, our retail, if you like, our retail outlets, which is cinemas, closed for a few months, three or four months. Uh, so we didn't have anywhere to distribute films. And at that stage, too, we couldn't make them. We couldn't produce them. And certainly that was the case overseas. The great news is for Australia is that we got healthy, uh, Australia, New Zealand, we got healthier than the rest of the world very quickly. Um, so two things happened. One, cinemas reopened and we were able to release some films. Not the big blockbusters because the rest of the world weren't healthy enough for us to release those ones simultaneous around the world. But then it also allowed productions to take place with COVID restrictions, but it allowed them to take place. We know we've got the skill set here uh, with both technical behind the cameras and we've also got the creative talent in front of the cameras that is, you know, on a par with anyone. Uh, it's it's world and it's a leading uh, it's a leading position that we take. The great news was that because we were so healthy down here, the US people, particularly the United States, said, "Great, one, we can make productions down in Australia because um, they're going ahead and they're open for business, and two, it's healthy down there." So all these stars that were desperate to get out of Hollywood for a start and to come down here. Now, it's been too far for them to usually travel, but now we've got them all putting their hand up going, pick me, I want to go. Um, that's obvious, That's great, uh, you know, I suppose for the industry and for Hollywood. I note on a bio of yours on Screen for Forever, it talks about two particular topics and one is about the factors that enhance likelihood of Australian films working at the box office and also about Australian stories that connect and feel genuine with Australian audiences. Has this pandemic sort of given more opportunity for Australian stories and Australian voices as well? Yeah, I think, uh, look, it has. There was, um, there was two, uh, two films that came out. One was called The Dry. Uh, one was called Penguin Bloom that came out. Now, they did very well. In fact, probably some would say, uh, not cruelly or unfairly, but some would say they probably did double the business that they normally would have. Why? Because the, the, the competition um, and the invasion of Hollywood films being released at that time was vacant. It was, a, it was a desert. So suddenly you had these great Australian films that had air. Um, they weren't being suffocated and being bombarded by the, some of the Hollywood films uh, and being, you know, competitively booted off screens in cinemas. So you had this opportunity for Australians to connect with these films, talk amongst friends. Word of mouth was good on them both. They were very good films. And so they just had the opportunity to play longer and played on. And it was a terrific Terrific thing to see that, one, Australians discovering Australian films and, two, discovering a good experience, not a bad one, and that's a really good thing. But generally speaking, Australians have a place. They appeal pretty much more so to older people rather than younger younger, younger fans, um, and, and that's, that's just by nature now that Australians, older Australians ex are accepting of Australian uh, uh, films uh, the younger guys and younger family, they probably are used to the Hollywood fair, trust them more and are and have expectations for bigger special effects and uh, and action and blockbusters and families from 
you know, Pixar and Disney films and things that they're looking for and things. So that's that's really a characteristic of uh, what's been going on the last sort of 12 months. Steve, I, th- I think also that there's a particular style to Australian movies. I, I would argue they're quite easy to spot. And there's often a very sparse feel to Australian movies. There's a lot of celebration of, you know, uh, The Dry is a great example, but the plots can be quite challenging. And I guess my question is, do you see the Australian movie industry broadening its narrative? Or, or maybe you disagree with my pretext that, that there, there are more narratives in Aussie movies that just haven't spotted them. But they, I do think you can spot Aussie movies. And I think that's a, both a strength and a weakness. So my question is, will that, will that, style broaden in the future? Well, you know, I I think it's a really interesting observation. There's two things about it. Firstly, and and, and admirably, the Australian creative industry has pursued without fear or favour their creative objective or passion or whatever. And that's fantastic. But sometimes that comes at the expense of commerciality. So there is that balance sometimes of which Hollywood gets right, which is balancing creativity versus commerciality. And and sometimes when you're that creative and you're pushing the edges and boundaries, you're losing your audience appeal uh, and things. So there is that juggle uh, and to do it. And when you say there's sort of a look and the rest of it, one of the things Australian films haven't done well is that we sometimes make great films, but the money is not there to promote them, to support them, and to do what Hollywood does best is that sometimes, and you've seen Hollywood films, their sizzle is better than the sausage. You see some of the trailers and the TV sees and stuff, and you go, man, that looks fantastic. And then you get to the movies, you've seen the bits in the TV ad or the trailer, and you go, that's it, that's it, that's all I've got. <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's so true. Uh, Stephen, I just wanted to change tack a little bit. Uh, sure. Chris mentioned um, uh, earlier that you know you were from branding as well. I just wonder if you could give us a little you know potted history. And, and we asked you to give us a quote. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that someone gave you a quote at the beginning of your film career. So I'd really love to uh, hear what that is. Yeah. Look, I think firstly, there's a really interesting. My background is in in, in certainly brand and product marketing uh, originally, and then I did some advertising stints with the Campaign Palace and Young Rubicum and, a, and an old English agency called Alan Brady and Marsh in, in London there, which was a great leading agency for many years. Um, but then I came into the film business and it was an extraordinary lesson, the first thing, which is consumer loyalty didn't matter. And it was like that was the thing that I was taught about, you know, when you get marketing right for a product or a brand, it was loyalty because that second purchase, that repeat purchase was everything. It bound you into a customer uh, and someone that was going to support you. And in this game, you just needed to sell your product, i.e. a film, once. And if you could get someone to go along once, that's what your objective was. Because in the end, you weren't worried about the repeat purchase. You, you really weren't. You just needed to get them into the cinema. Now, if they went a second time, and people do go and see films a couple of times, That is utopia. You've suddenly got something altogether different on your hands. But our job is to sell the film and to sell it once and to get people and to drive them into cinemas. So one of the things I learned is about traditional brand branding and traditional marketing versus what I'm doing, which is entertainment marketing, if you like, and films. One of the great quotes I got uh, in this business, uh, 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 and it was, a beauty and I came in uh, and I thought I was, you know, I thought I, I needed to know a lot in the marketing area and this and that. But someone said, Stephen, 
here's the quote I'm going to give you. And it was, nobody knows anything. And, and I said, what do you mean? And it was a quote from William Goldman. And he just went on to say that not one person in the entire motion picture field knows for certainty what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess. And if you're lucky, an educated one. Now, William Goldman, if thing, is one of Hollywood's most gifted novelist, playwright and screenplay writers. He won Academy Awards for his screenplays for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men. And I thought it was an incredible quote to hear and actually reassuring because I thought if nobody knows anything, I've got a chance to survive in this business. (laughs) <laughs> and so I thought, and I've had a long and, and, and fertile career, which just goes to show William Goldman was right. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a really interesting thing. So here's, here's one, one of my first instances, and even before I started my first day in this business 30 years ago, my wife and I, Caroline, were invited to a private screening in a theatrette at the old Hoyts building in George Street, where they were in Hoyts. And it was about 30 people in armchairs, very seasoned industry pros. And we were seeing a, uh, a first release cut of a, of a movie called Strictly Ballroom. And we sat there and the rest of it. And then at the end of it, it went up. And um, they went around the room and, and, and the guy that uh, had seen this film and was really tickled by it. He was really, really energised by it. Went around some of the, the veterans and said, what do you think? And some of these veterans just said, whoa, what a miss. You know what I mean? And and, and they went through about why it was um, unappealing or wouldn't work and all the rest of it. And I was being a little quiet. And, of course, they got to my wife. And I, and I haven't started. And the worst thing is your wife speaking for you. It's like, don't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> she spoke they pay me for my opinion. Yeah, and she turned around and she said what I felt too, which was, wow, she said, I loved it. I thought it was so inspiring, so entertaining and things, and I felt the same way. And so there you go. And it was that classic quote that I heard the next day, actually, when I first turned up, which was, nobody knows anything. And I thought creativity is summed up there. It it's in the it's in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes it's in the majority of the eyes of the beholder, and sometimes that's what you've got to have a sense of and learn, and perhaps you know, perhaps develop a skill for. But I thought it was a great quote. It applies today to everything. Some things that most people perhaps know more than others, but every every week there's a surprise, and it's a surprise about creativity. There's no such thing. Uh, and that's why we love creativity because it's continually surprising, it's continually challenging us and stuff, and it's so exciting. So, Stephen, I have to say I find that quote totally inspiring. I used to work for a company that was named uh, after a story about the room of not knowing, and um, I, so I adore that idea, and it, it, it sort of gives me hope that. Um, we won't be all grounded to dust by procedures and norms and averages and so on. But my question is, how do you promote that ability to not know when, of course, you know, what we're trained to do is to kind of build an experience and agree norms and, you know, follow the rules. How do you help people not know? Well, I think that's really a great question because, the great thing about an assessment of creativity too sometimes come from your cultural um, outside influences, you know, and things. So so the Australian cultural influences for us 
on assessments of film are very different from those ones that are happening in Brazil right now, that are happening different in Finland and, and, and Denmark, and are happening differently even across the ditch to New Zealand. Um, and, and that's the great thing. So when we come to assessing films, you know, their, their if you like, their appeal, uh, we have to make that assessment based on market knowledge, um, experience, history, um, some sort of comparative uh, assessment. But in the end, we have to make judgments, hopefully, on what we think people will like, i.e. that audience and things. So we do that based on what we feel is right in this market. And hopefully, and we have, we've got in incredible support from the studio and Sony Classics and our acquisitions group that pick up films at Sundance uh, or Berlin or Cannes and San Sebastian Film Festivals to give us the opportunity to. And I want to tell you that Australia remains one of the leading and best and most successful art house markets in the world. Not only are we great with commercial films, we're in the top 10. We've got we're in the top 40 in audience in, in, in a population, but we're in number six or seven, five, six or seven best countries in the world for box office in gross terms. Yet also in the art house world, we are one of the best. And if you continue to, if you like, prove yourself and provide success, uh, then you get support. And we've got that here in this country and we're very fortunate too. And we've got outlets in the film festivals, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, all different ones. And then we have a great uh, set of art house cinemas and networks that provide great uh, structure for us to, to release these films. Mm. St Stephen, I'm interested, you know, obviously creativity is a lot about collaboration and in the, you know, the production of films, collaborations, you know, a, a key element. Um, I'm just interested, you know, you said we a lot. How, how does that work? How does that look? you know, for your life and, you know, when you're making decisions, when you say we, do, do you have a, a group of, I don't know, what, what's, what's your team look like? How, how do you make these decisions? And Yeah, look, I'm very fortunate, Paul, because, look, I, I, I sit up on top of the pyramid, but in the end it's the people underneath that push you up, don't they? It's the, uh, you know, the, the like the iceberg, all the people are freezing down below and I'm, 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 I'm nicely in the sunlight up top and things and, uh, and the rest of it. But, yeah, we've got a, a fantastic team of of marketers, uh, publicists, promotions people, salespeople, um, who all their opinions matter. Um, and look, if you go too wide, you know it. If you go to to a, a too great a committee, you sometimes never get a decision, decision and and a, and a clear direction. But sometimes you need to take it broader. Uh, if you if you need a broader perspective, perhaps more people less close to the subject matter or someone's whose opinion that you want. Now, I've got some dependent people here. I read about two scripts a week. I've got perhaps two people here who I know are very experienced and insightful to, if you like, judging uh, screenplays. Um, we have we assess TV materials, trailer materials, print matter, you know, every day. And we have a, a core working group that, that do that. But within our group, you've also got to say, well, look, you know, who's, who's expertise? If I have a family film, I really want to know. We've got some mums here. We've got quite a few, few, few people with young children. I want to get their input and to say, well, is that suitable for a six year old or a 10 year old or a 12 year old? I've got some, you know, there's some 
films that appeal to a 65-year-old woman. Now, some people might describe me as that, but I would rather go to a group that perhaps have a little bit more insight to that group. So, yes, we use use some specialists for that thing as well. But I think the interesting thing is that, you know, I I think it's really interesting is that you, you ask that. I think if you have... Some people aren't creative, by the way, and cannot judge creativity. That's not a bad thing. They've got a skill set in a different thing. You've just got to recognise who's skilled at assessing things and interpreting them and who isn't. You've got to realise that everyone is not that way inclined. And and I think we've done that. And hopefully I've got some people, and hopefully including myself modestly, who just for lasting uh, so long, but as I said, we're pucked down in Australia. Maybe we're hiding out very nicely, but is to assess to assess creativity across a kids' film, an art house film, a foreign language film, to a women's film, and do it uh, on a on a, on an informed basis, and be able to do that across all genres and all types of films. Are you are you still getting your wife's opinion, uh, given that she broke the ice in the first instance, David? I'm limiting her exposure, thanks, Paul. <laughs> no, she's, she's terrific. And, you know, what she's got a very uh, mainstream, mid, you know, general uh, interpretation of films, appeal and playability uh, and things. And uh, sometimes I'll push her into more, you know, offbeat, very strange films like uh, Lobster or, or, you know what I mean? So, yes, yeah, sometimes I'll push her into areas and things and to get that feeling from her. And I said, but for me, that's a great sounding tool. But but I also know her tastes. And that's a really good thing and a really important thing to know where the dynamics are. And I've obviously got children who have grown up in the movie business and, and one love, loves Marvel films uh, and things and, and sci-fi films. The other one is, is a daughter who likes romantic uh, comedies or musicals and musicals I can't stand, but I also know what it's, a good one is too. So you, there you go. I think that's very interesting. So I know the story, or I, I heard the story of Cato uh, Rowling, um, who's uh, it was the daughter who said, "Dad, where's the next? Where's the next one? I want the next chapter." Uh, which uh, which started him, and everyone else had ignored it. So it's interesting. This is the Harry, the Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me more. I need the next chapter. Yes, yeah, I understand. I, but it's funny, Paul and, and Chris. I, I, you know, for me, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it could be to a, to be a painter um, or a filmmaker too. But to put it, say, your art piece up, and, and Chris, you're a photographer, I, I know. But when you put something up on the wall and someone comes by and you he- overhear them go, "Geez, that's a piece of shit." I mean, it's soul destroying. I've had some films that we've released that I've honestly genuinely adored and taken a risk to release with the team and the rest because I've genuinely adored them and think that they are really worthy. And then to have the feedback that says, boy, that wasn't that crap or wasn't that storyline shit or that acting film. And, and I would take it personally. And I'm not even a goddamn filmmaker. I'm one, you know, arm apart. But it's something I've taken on and invested emotionally in and perhaps monetarily in. And it's and it's it hurts. It so hurts. And when you open a film and you see the box office being so poor, it's it's a heart. It's you know it's a dagger through the heart. Yeah, actually, I think it's very interesting in your quote. As I say, no one knows anything, and it's also about or anything, and it's also about the public. I'm just currently reading uh, Austin Cleon's books, "Steal Like an Artist" and "Show Your Work," and uh, the other one was "Getting Through" or something. But he talks about that exactly, and it comes back to your early point about audience. He said, you know, like, don't listen to what everyone says because, you know, there will be an audience out there that loves your work, but people hate it, and it's part and process. 
I'm actually an artist as well. I'm a painter, and I know exactly that feeling. And there's a, you know, I've always said it, it's fear uh, about putting stuff out there. But I've recently came to the to the view that it's actually frisson, which is a French word, which is you know the the hairs on the back of your neck, and it's that it's that point between fear and excitement, you know, and it's. It's, you know, picking up the phone to make a call or pushing the button to publish something where, you know, you're excited, but you're also fearful because you don't know where it's going to go. And I think that is, in a lot of ways, the essence of our creativity. I, I currently do watercolours. It might take me, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to do a watercolour. If it's not received, it doesn't matter. But it, it's much more difficult in your industry where, you know, there's millions of dollars are committed to something that may or may not fly. And that, and that must be uh, must be heart-wrenching when, you know, you think it's great and it turns out the audience doesn't. Yeah, and it's it's really hard. And then, you know, you, you, you talk about where's the role of critics and stuff, you know. And uh, I can only tell you, and thankfully, honestly, when I first started, there was the power of some of the journalistic critics in this country was overbearingly strong. Uh, and they were overbearingly out of touch, some of them, you know, with, with who the film's audience was. And you've got to actually appreciate and assess a, a piece of creativity for either the creator's, you know, passion and why he was doing it or who it was for. And then when I, uh, you know, I see films that are assessed uh, without an understanding for its audience, I, I, I get upset and disappointed. I thought the great one was we had a great uh, example with a Disney Pixar film called Coco uh, and the most beautiful tale. I mean, you know, it won every single best motion picture for an animation award at BAFTAs and the Golden Globes and Oscars and everything else around the place. We had a movie called The Emoji, The Emoji Movie and the rest of it. It picked up, I think, most awards in the Razzies, i.e. for the worst performances, worst movie the rest of it done. It was absolutely hounded in the rest of it too. I can tell you, uh, Coco did about $3.5 million in this country uh, and the Emoji Movie did nearly $14 million in this country. And the reason being, and what a great thing, and, and, and says to me, and in the end, the families had a ball with the Emoji Movie. There was colour and movement and some fun characters of which the children just had a ball with. Coco was serious, beautifully reflective and moody and slow. And the kids weren't having a bar of it. The parents may have. So, you know, here's that thing about working out who the audience is for. But, but you know, for Paul and Chris, you're, you're creative artists in yourself. And it's really tough because you've got to have that confidence, um, thick skin, uh, and, 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 you know, that, that sort of perseverance to keep on pushing and, and for people to sort of like or not like, but know that you and your heart are delivering upon yourself and being honest to yourself and things. And hopefully, hopefully, whether you judge it or not by its success, its commerciality or not, but you're rewarded by someone saying, I love that. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's, Stephen, we, we sprung a question on you just before we started recording, which, which is to ask us, ask if you had a... A creative habit or a creative experiment that maybe Paul and I could try during the week. And the idea is to, to see if we can have a go with whatever tools you use to be more creative or to harness creativity and then report back on how we got on with that. Is there anything you can share with us in that area? Yeah, look, I mean, this, it's a, look, this is, there's only a couple of things that I, I mean, I, I do, which is, uh, in, in, and it's not even challenge myself. The first one is that I think is that I look at 
firstly, I look at commercial TV and I try and find a great ad. Uh, and then I try and explain what that is. And by the way, I think we have lost creativity in that commercial world through horrible um, bureaucracy uh, and an inability to take risks in the corporate culture, particularly amongst the FMCGs. Um, if you look back at the halcyon days of the, uh, of the, you know, the late, oh, I suppose all the 80s and, and early 90s in London, where the most incredible creativity was coming from, of which bled into this country and, and around the world and the US, there was ad after ad after ad that were breaking boundaries and entertaining you. And they were incredible. And so now I look around and say, I can't. So my first challenge, though, each week is to try and find a great creative ad and why. And what is it? Is it is it the, the nature of presentation? Is it the emotion that they're doing? I keep on coming back to the Cadbury ads and see that little girl that goes in to pay for the Cadbury thing with a with a little button and a horse and stuff for her mum, you know. And then you know the little boy on the the bus, the Cadbury ad that that, that gives the the little piece of chocolate to the girl crying. I mean, I I shed a tear every time I see it. I've seen it twenty eight times, and I still shed a tear. But I write I write to the people at Cadbury to say congratulations. You're doing something fantastic. So I I don't write to the people that are writing crack because they don't deserve any attention. But I write to the ones that do a great job. So for me personally, I look for creativity and try and find out why it's they're doing there. Just here and personally in the rest of it is, for me, is I actually just refer people to things that they don't usually in within this circle of things and, and it's a piece of film uh, that's come out from either ourselves or someone else that, that, that challenges them and asks them why it worked or why it didn't work. And that's for me is just to ask them why something creatively was good, bad, uh, or should have worked, should not have. So we kind of try and keep on assessing materials that we see. And that could be a TV spot for a film. Uh, it could be a trailer in cinema, um, a, a poster concept, uh, or the movie itself. But every week we ask ourselves why something is working or not working. And I do that personally, indeed, just on a TV uh, content basis on commercials. That is wonderful, Tim. Yeah, fantastic. That is uh, that is a great challenge. I never really sort of thought of that, particularly around ads, you know, what finding a great ad. And as you say, there may be fewer and far between, but to ask that question, why? So, Chris, I'm up for that for sure. Yeah, and I'm up for it too. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I came from, a, a you know, a, an agency, the Campaign Palace, which was infamous for its creativity. Um, that creativity was about, was really based on an English discipline of great strategic, you know, understanding. So the boundaries of creativity could be pushed beyond the limits based on great strategic understanding. Uh, and that is a, a, an amazing, you know, if you like uh, yin and yang, but both perfect perfect harmony and great combination and stuff. And, you know, if I go back to it, like the daintiest way to stuff your face was an old chip ad, you know, a crisp ad and stuff. I mean, what the hell was that doing? I mean, uh, ballerinas uh, stuffing their face with chips. But it, there was something about the strategic, you know, under, you know, under, under current for that ad that was there that was justifying its existence. But, you know, as I said, I, I, I love creativity because I think if you're the more creative you are, the better connection you're going to make. And that creativity comes in not because you're different or crazy or bold or whatever. It means creativity with regards to pushing the boundaries 
in some sort of emotional state and that getting that a reaction and all the, spa- the, the, the facets of your emotion uh, and stuff. And it can be a finance ad too, you know, and it can be a, a service ad for insurance. It can be anything like that. It doesn't have to be wild and wacky. It just have to elicit that great emotional response you want from that product or service. I love that thought. The more creative you are, the better connection you're going to make. Because I think there's a, a message to the world of business, maybe particularly people in packaged goods, that unleashing a bit of creativity will help your connection with your customers. It's not something to be scared of. So I uh, love that thought. Maybe we should leave it there. I think you've given us a tremendous challenge to look at an advert, ask ourselves why. Some wonderful insights into the Australian movie industry. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen. Pleasure, Chris and Paul. And if I can give you a tip, there's a movie coming up called Nine Days. It's creative. It's bold. It's coming out in July. And um, I would just tell you, it, it looks at, you know, so, something so fresh that will make you sit in a seat and question your life and soul. But it's a really original filmmaker that I think is going to go a long way. And you know what? You love those when those little gems come along and you go, oh, this is something special. So it's called Nine Days. But that's a tip for the future. <laughs> Thank you. And your, your other tips to me have been superb. So if anybody tuning in, I would highly recommend you follow that tip. Nine days coming up in July. Thank you, Stephen. Good on you, guys. Thank, thanks, Steve. That's fantastic. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like not to miss any future episodes, please subscribe. And if you subscribe, it helps others find us. And a huge thank you to Zane Weber, our audio engineer, to Michaela Rock, our producer. I'm Chris Meredith. We'll see you next week. I'm Paul Fiona. Join us then.